Hello ladies and gentlemen, it's me again, Bryony, and that means it's time for another Stand Up Tragedy podcast special. This episode follows our last live night on January 17th, which had the theme of tragic beginnings. If you missed the show or want to hear performers like Jay Foreman, Emily Capel, Rosie Wilby and Helen Saltzman again, then listen to all three acts just as they went out on the night right here on our podcast. You can find this podcast on the website, on SoundCloud and on iTunes. So for Tragic Beginnings, we encourage our performers to think about their new year, think about tragic beginnings that don't necessarily have tragic endings and how they're feeling about the year to come. Here's what Stand Up Tragedy host and creator Dave Pickering came up with when he considered these ideas. I've been thinking about uh, tragic beginnings as being a, a sort of, if you start in tragic beginnings, often you can move forwards to a better understanding. Um, and so what I thought I'd do tonight as your host uh, is to share the uh, 10 of the worst things that I've ever said with you tonight. Um, Because that seems to be like what Tragic Beginnings is about, uh, from my point of view. You know, you you get into a conversation, you try to uh, say the right thing, and you say the wrong thing, and there begins a a terribly awkward moment, which is uh, a regular feature in my life, that kind of thing. Um, So hopefully, uh, this won't be a tragic beginning in terms of you listen to the 10 worst things I've ever said, and then you hate me. And then you, uh, then you all storm out of the room and leave, and, and there we go. Because my job as the compare, obviously, is to, to guide you through the night. So the more I alienate you, the worse the night will be. So hopefully, uh, I won't alienate you too much. We'll see. Um, so uh, each of these moments could be said to have uh, been the start of something. Uh, but because of the failure that I, my tragic hero, uh, failure... The, uh, they didn't lead to anything very much, or in fact, they led to sad things. Um, and normally sad things for other people, not for me, because that's unfortunately the way these things go. Um, and I've been thinking that like a tragic beginning is something terrible that happens that can't be reversed, right? Uh, and I think that's what we're going to have tonight. But here's the first four of the worst things I've ever said. All right. Now, like in bullet points, when I look at them, I'm like horrified just by the bullet points. So we'll see how, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> All right. So um, when I was 13 years old, uh, my really close friend uh, was going through a terrible time in a far uh, away place, and I w- couldn't be with him. Uh, and he sent me an email uh, telling me that he was thinking about uh, committing suicide. Um, my response was to uh, email him with the sentence... If you try to commit suicide, I'll kill you. Now, I know that's almost funny, isn't it? Almost funny. Almost got a laugh. Really not funny, obviously, in reality. Uh, And all I can say is, I'm sorry, I was 13. I understand these kind of issues much better now, and I would not do something so crass. Uh, But that said, only recently is when I did, I think, probably the worst thing I've ever said. Uh, It won't sound like that to you now, maybe, but someone was incredibly sad and they were crying and I wanted to make them feel better. They were crying because I'd sung a song about my really good relationship with my father. And uh, I I, I believe they didn't have a good relationship with their father. I directly just said I did, but then I sat down with them and said... I feel your pain. Yeah, exactly. Right, I'm I'm feeling it now, because I am actually, this is a good tragic beginning. I am gradually alienating you all. This is, uh, 
I guess a success. We'll, we'll carry on to the next one. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, this is a, almost a funny one. So, and in fact, it probably is a funny one, but I feel bad about it. So, uh, my friends uh, announced, uh, well, well, we're ready to announce the, uh, the, birth, the uh, conception of their second child. And they were sort of eager to, to announce it to all of their friends. And they did. And I, they, they announced it to, to me. And I said, oh, that's really good. Because uh, uh, the other day I got a, a letter from the, the NHS telling, telling me that I'm officially unfertile, right? Because I've, uh, I've uh, had a vasectomy and it's been a success, guys. And it completely took the limelight from them and their new birth. And everybody wanted to talk to me about why I decided at 32 to have a vasectomy uh, and all of that stuff. Uh, so <laughs> not such a, a bad thing in the big scheme of things. They're still all right. Um, and then the fourth one is a, a famous person that I said a terrible thing to. So I, back in the day, I was at the Student Radio Awards uh, just after John Peel had died, and uh, Steve Lamack was there, and I'm a musician, one of the things I do. And I went up to Steve Lamack and I said, uh, now that John Peel is dead, you're, it's your responsibility to represent alternative music. And then I looked into Steve Lamack's eyes, and I realised... He knew John Peel. I was this brash idea that I'd had of like, oh yeah, this is the coolest thing to say in the world. It's actually just like shitting on someone's dead friend. Uh, well, there we go. So uh, that's my first four things. I'm going to go off now. We'll have a, a, a couple more songs and then we'll come on with somebody else who won't be telling you the worst things they've ever done. Uh, I'm going to tell you some more bad things I do later. Uh, hopefully you'll be more drunk by then so you'll be more likely to laugh at the terrible things I've done. And hopefully I haven't alienated you too much at the beginning of the night. Uh, so the last two, I know we've all been waiting for this, the last two terrible things that I've said. Uh, <laughs> So this one is like something I'm deeply ashamed of, really. Uh, I, I ended up going to a six-pawn prom that wasn't my own because all my friends were in the year above me. Uh, and I sort of sneaked in with a guy that, who was my friend who was doing the DJing and sort of stood by the side of the DJ booth looking like a bodyguard or something uh, to, to, to excuse us being there. And then when, when the drinking started, I certainly, certainly started the drinking and got very, very drunk and decided it would be a really good idea to tell every teacher there exactly what I thought of them. And I did, and I went round all of the teachers, and it was, you know, when you're young and you're like, oh, this is exciting, oh, I'm getting to, to do this. And I told them all what I thought of them, and I was, I was, I was nice, generally speaking, to them. Uh, and then I um, spoke to a teacher called Mr. Hegarty, uh, and I told him that he was a really nice guy, but that he shouldn't be a teacher uh, because he couldn't control the class. Uh, Mr. Hegarty then burst into tears and cried for quite a long time. There we go. That's the end of that. There's, there's no redemption. I didn't, I didn't, there's no, there's no way I can take that back. It is a tragic beginning. You can't, you can't reverse it. Um, and I guess the, the final, the final tragic beginning turned out a little bit less tragically. Uh, when I, I first got to university, I was determined to be myself because uh, I had not been able to be myself at school. I was bullied for quite a few years in lots of different ways. Um, and so I went there militantly myself. Uh, and the first day of proper study, uh, 8.30 in the morning, 
was when they decided to make the creative writing seminar for our group. 8.30 in the morning on a Monday. And I'm there, <clears throat> and so are the other members of that, that creative writing group. And they're all standing around, tired and awkward, trying to introduce themselves. I'm hunched up, sort of against a wall, reading The Guardian, right? In the, back in the days when The Guardian was a broadsheet. I don't read The Guardian that much anymore. I'm not too into uh, some things about that newspaper. But then I was, and I had this big Guardian, and uh, a, a, a girl uh, was trying to sort of... Uh, Smooth, smooth out the mood in the, in the, in the, in the group. And, and she said, oh, it's quite early in the morning, isn't it? You know, something like that. And I, uh, I moved down my Guardian, looked over the top of it, looked up at her and said, well, I like to start every week with writing. And uh, <laughs> zipped that newspaper up in front of my face like a complete and utter twat. Uh, and that could have been a tragic, tragic ending and, and a tragic beginning uh, to that interaction. But uh, over the next coming months, I, I, I uh, realised that that girl was an amazing person and I'd really like to be with her. Uh, then I danced at her for a while at a nightclub <laughs> and persuaded her to give me a, her phone number because, I mean, just to get rid of me, I think. And uh, then I phoned her at like, what was it, 7.30 in the morning? I phoned her at 7.30 the next day, right? That's what you do when you get a number, isn't it? Phone someone at 7.30 the next day. Um, and, and she was so uh, confused, because I guess she'd woken up that she agreed to go on a date with me. And uh, it's 13 years later, and we're going to be... Well, it'll be 13 years on, on Valentine's Day. Unfortunately, don't, don't pick Valentine's Day to start your birthday. You'll never get a seat at a restaurant the rest of your, the rest of your anniversaries. Unfortunately, I couldn't attend Tragic Beginnings for myself, but I want this stand-up tragedy podcast special to make you consider a few of the things that a new year makes us all think of. So have a listen, and hopefully you can appreciate some of the ideas that our performers explored. This is what one audience member who came along thought of Tragic Beginnings. I've really enjoyed it. It was yeah. very unexpected. I, well, I guess... Um, I came here to see a friend who's a comedian and I, I didn't realise kind of, I guess, the kind of acts that, that would be here and it's been really varied and um, there's been some really quite, quite moving stuff, um, some lovely music as well. First up then, we're well into the new year, but what has it done for your professional life? To bring you some perspective, true storyteller Jess Brownery got up on the stand-up tragedy stage and told the audience about his very unusual start to the world of work. Okay, hello folks. <laughs> now, this is a true story, folks. This is a, a true story about a... A kind of tragic beginning of mine. Um, it is the story of my first job after leaving university, the beginning of my adult life and work. It's also the story of how I ended up on a bus with these passengers rounded up at gunpoint. Yes. Passengers rounded up at gunpoint and the fear that came afterwards. So, uh, the idea of teaching English abroad, going to some far-fun place and teaching the English language, 
I have to say, these days I feel is a little, little bit fishy. It's a language that's only important because we have invaded 174 of the world's 196 or so countries. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the whole concept's up for debate, I think. But back when I was uh, finishing university, and I was freaking out about what I was going to do next, and a friend and I saw a poster. Teach English in China. Fantastic, I won't have to think about my life at all. I'll just do this instead. Wonderful. No teaching qualifications necessary, just any degree. Brilliant, I've been doing philosophy and religious studies. <laughs> Definitely qualifies as any degree. So a few friends and I applied, and we were assigned to different schools in the Chinese province of Hainan. China is a wonderful country. It's extraordinary. It is the uh, loudest, liveliest, uh, up for it, in your face place uh, with the most wonderful uh, and kind people as you're ever likely to meet. Unfortunately, as I'm sure you all know, it is governed by wankers. We'll come back to that in a bit. Anyway, I was sent to a school in uh, a really beautiful uh, countryside area of, of Hainan, uh, lots of forest and uh, rice paddies and farmlands, absolutely gorgeous. It was, the, it was called the Hainan Peace Public School. The Hainan Peace Public School. Not very peaceful. Regular events in my primary level English classes included kids throwing shoes out of third floor windows, five-year-olds playing poker, <laughs> and children setting fire to their textbooks. They love the classes that much, yeah. Now, uh, when I was uh, teaching colours, one day, just to try and get their attention, I resorted, resorted to walking around a classroom with a red bucket on my head, shouting, RED! RED! <laughs> just the kids stopped destroying the place long enough to wonder what the crazy fat Westerner was up to. As will also become apparent in a, little minute, in a little minute, I was going a little bit nuts at the same time as well, so we'll come back to that too. Unfortunately, it soon became clear that all was not well at this school. Uh, the headmaster had run off with all the school's money. Yeah. Teachers hadn't been paid for half a year. A few weeks after I arrived, uh, electricity, water and heating were all being rationed. A few weeks after that, the whole school uh, children and staff were being fed nothing but rice and cabbage every meal. I I'm vegetarian, but I'm not that vegetarian. <laughs> As unrest at the school grew, the police came in. The teachers actually threatened to protest about what was happening at the provincial education department. As I'm sure you know, the Chinese government get a little bit uppity about that kind of behaviour. Unfortunately, and inevitably, the school was shut down. And the teachers decided to go ahead with their protest. Now, as much as I really wanted to, I really supported what they're doing, I, I thought this was awful, and I, I would love to have got involved, but I could not get involved at all because uh, if the authorities saw that a Westerner was involved in the protest, then the consequences for the teachers would be far worse. So I couldn't get involved in this. But, but, the only way, I had to leave as well. I had to leave the school too, because the school had closed down. And the only way for me to get from the school, in the middle of nowhere, to this city, was on the coach the teachers were taking to their demo. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> About an hour into the journey, we uh, were stopped by an armed 
police roadblock in the village. The police boarded the bus. They ordered the teachers off, off the coach at gunpoint and lined them up against a wall. It wasn't clear at all what the police were intending to do or how far they were going to go in enforcing the law. Uh, there was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of shoving and pushing. The teachers were absolutely terrified, clearly, literally, the police brandishing their guns at them. Me, I, I found myself scrabbling for my British passport <laughs> as if my petrified white face wasn't <laughs> already a clue to the police enough not to cause a minor diplomatic incident. Um, all that happened to me, though, was that I was marched off the coach and put onto another local bus uh, going off to the city. So I was sent away, and it was the last time that I saw many of those teachers. I arrived pretty freaked out in the provincial capital of, uh, of Hainan province called Haikou. I was adrift in a Chinese city I barely knew. I was homeless. I mean, I wasn't on the streets, but I had nowhere to live. I had no job. And because the school hadn't paid me or processed my visa papers, I was broke and illegally in the country. Also, I was going slightly crazy on a brand of dodgy malaria tablets that I was taking at the time. A friend of mine on these same tablets went to sleep every night with auditory hallucinations of brass bands marching past his window. For me, these tablets uh, sped my mind up a thousand thoughts per second. Each and every thought was that I was going to drop dead right now. My mind was literally like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, now, 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 for three months. I felt nothing but mortal terror for three months. This was not helped by one panic attack so severe, I was rushed to hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. Also not helped by the city randomly testing their air raid sirens leaving me running around screaming, thinking I was going to die in a nuclear fireball. I was also being hassled by the police a lot at this time as well. Um, I was being uh, called into police stations for endless sessions of questioning about why I didn't have a visa, what was I doing in China, and did I have anything to do with the protest? They thought I was some sort of rabble-rouser. So, why didn't I just leave? Why don't I just go home? Why don't I just go back to England? Well, firstly, apart from the fact that I didn't have a visa and I couldn't leave because I, I was illegally there in the first place, amongst all this happening, I'd lost my passport. The police didn't like that either. But do you know what? That was the best thing that could have happened. It meant that I couldn't run away. It meant that I had to stay there and face it. I couldn't leave. I had to deal with it. I was really, really, really lucky that I had friends of mine who were living in the city and teaching in schools there who helped me through this period. I couldn't have done it without them. Um, I actually have one of my friends uh, right here tonight who helped me through this and, and helped me with the whole uh, panic attack, heart attack night. So thank you, Matt. 
Um, so I couldn't done without them. And it did start to turn around. There's one day when I was walking through a market and I just stopped dead in amazement because a song was going around my head. The whole, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, now, 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 had just kind of cleared up enough. My mind had cheered the fuck up enough for a little song's melody just to kind of be bouncing around my brain. And I tell you what, it's one of the most wonderful moments of my life to kind of see that my mind had cleared a little bit. A few months after that, my passport turned up, handed in by a taxi driver. <laughs> I got a job at another school. They really helped me out. They uh, processed my visa papers. They got me a new place to live. Um, and uh, yeah, a job. And they also negotiated, negotiated with the police to stop giving me shit. And it meant that a few months down the line, I had my act together enough to try and figure out what had happened to the teachers after I'd left them, after I'd been put on the bus by the police, and I'd gone to try and figure out what had happened to them, because I hadn't heard from them, I had no contact from them at all in the whole time. So the, I didn't know where to start, so a friend and I went back to the school that I was first assigned to. We found it a really deserted, really sad, really forlorn, crumbling place, just a ghost of a school, empty of children. And we found some of the teachers living there. They had nowhere else to go. In some ways, they're actually really lucky, in many ways, because the corruption that started the whole thing actually saved their skins. The provincial government decided that they didn't want the teachers to go on trial for trying to protest, because that would show up what a shitty job they'd done in running the place. So they were set free with no charges. So that's, that's, that's okay. But they still uh, hadn't been paid. They still had no job and they had nowhere to go. And they were just literally just stuck in this empty school. They were caught between a corrupt capitalist system that had taken away, taken away their jobs, their livelihoods and their dignity and a corrupt authoritarian government uh, that refused to let them challenge the whole thing and just couldn't care less. Frankly, also, I would see that as a situation that is, we're starting to see a little bit more on these shores as well, I have to say. Um, capitalism, corrupt, authoritarian government, you know what I mean. Um, so, really, I was really, really very lucky, because when I got my passport, I could go, I could leave. I didn't. I remained in China for a while. Um, I worked out the contract of my new school. And I would say that I loved most of the rest of my time in China. But when I did leave, I left those teachers still there with, with nothing and with a very uncertain future. So it is a tragic beginning, but the beginning was mine and the tragedy really was theirs. Thank you very much. So if you've had a change to your career, for better or for worse, how does it compare to Jess's? If you liked hearing his true story, there's loads more in London as part of Spark London. Their true storytelling night is at various venues every Monday, so if you fancy going to one of those, go to www.sparklondon.co.uk to find out where they'll be next. For you, a new year might not have been just a time to examine your career, but you might have found yourself re-evaluating your love life. You're not alone. Nicole Thomas stood up on stage and told our audience about how all of her relationships begin. 
I'm seven. I'm sitting in mass at St. Viator's, and I'm having what many years later I will realize is an existential crisis. I exist. I'm alive at this moment, and all the things that could have happened to go wrong for me to not exist didn't happen, and I'm here right now, and I'm not somebody else. I was a very serious child. I think about that sometimes as an adult, where I play this game with myself, where I, I imagine if I had zigged rather than zagged, if I had had that cup of coffee rather than going home, how different things might be. Sort of like those, you know, those children's books where you have the, uh, the very bottom of the page, you know, go to page, page 16 if you pick this, page 23 if you pick something else. And when you consider all the things in your life, you know, what, moving to different cities, the people that we have as our friends, as our lovers, all those choices that, that result in page 16 rather than page 23. And of course, it's impossible. It's impossible to know what might have happened, but I wonder sometimes. And reflecting on, on all of that, thinking about this, it made me realize, and I was a little disturbed when I discovered this about myself, there have only been two people in my life that I dated that I actually wanted to date from the very first moment that I met them. Usually what will happen is the gentleman will ask me out and I'll say, no, no, thank you. And he'll say, oh, come on, it's just a drink. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, go on then. And next thing I know, I look up and I am living in a completely different country and married to this person. <laughs> and that's not to say that I don't love them. And it's not to say that I wasn't fully committed to those people that I dated that from moment one I wasn't completely into. But there was always a part of me that was separate. There was always a part of me that when things go wrong, because they always do in every relationship, it's not always clear set, you know, it can't be, can it? There was always a part of me that was separate, that was never fully in. So going back to 1995, if you're looking back at my life, page 16, if you're looking back at my life, page 16, when a choice was made, I said yes to the wrong man. So 1995, the internet is a baby. Google does not exist, believe it or not. <laughs> when you want to call someone, you don't text them, you don't mobile phone, you don't call them on your mobile phone, you call them and it's their answering machine which they go home and press a little button and a tape thing plays. Um, Kurt Cobain killed himself the year before. Clinton is in the White House. In December 95, I decide to move to Seattle because I don't have the balls to move to New York City. And I leave behind me in Las Vegas where I just got my, my master's in theater and where I grew up. I leave behind my mother, my stepfather, my sisters, a baby nephew, a father I'm not speaking to, and an ex-boyfriend. An ex-boyfriend that I was still hung up on, even though he was someone that I didn't want to be with initially. It's very difficult to describe Joe and explain Joe when you don't know him. He, he's like a character out of some kind of, it's, it's difficult. He, he's sort of like a fat George Clooney. He's very gregarious and charming and smart and lovely and, and tenacious and has a vicious sense of anger at 
unreasonable things. If Richard Dawkins was in a debate with Joe, eventually Dawkins would say, all right, fine, maybe there is a God. Okay, can we just shut up now, please? Can we just stop? And I was still hung up on this person. And even though I was now living in Seattle, I wasn't fully over it. I couldn't be because we were speaking on the phone constantly. He would send me little gifts, uh, books, when he would write things at the very beginning, you're the strongest person I know, you know, I love you, my princess, you know, bullshit like that. You get kind of sucked back into the drama. And I kept being pulled into that undertow of crap. And I'd be talking to my friends at the you know, couple of jobs I had because I worked two retail jobs and had no life because I was you know, 25, 26 and broke beyond you know, whatever. And finally my friend David at one point was like, it's fucking over, get over it, will you already? Move on. And he was right, I needed to move on. I needed to get fucking over it. Autumn 1996. I invite my friend Jeff to go see, and why I remember the, the name of the movie, I don't know, Looking for Richard. And it's, it was at a, a theater in Capitol Hill. And beforehand, we go and we get a cup of coffee. And uh, in the door walks somebody that Jeff knows from, um, from work, and they used to work together. And he happens to be going to the film as well, and so we invite him to join us. And there's that instant spark. You know, when you, when you meet someone, there may be in your life, maybe three times if you're lucky, that crackly, immediate, I must get to know you better feeling. And there, that was going on all over the place. And then whenever that happens to me, I always think it's in my head. And then later it's lovely when you discover it's not, but it, that, that they're feeling it too, but anyway. After the film, we're walking through Capitol Hill. We, we lived sort of in the same direction, but then off, we're talking, we're laughing, but no, nothing more than that. And I turned right, going to First Hill, and he turned left, and that was it. And I thought about him for weeks after that. You know, this person that I just, it, was, it, was, it would have been the best meet cute, best meet cute. And it just didn't quite happen, oh well. Thanksgiving, Jeff walks in, so Nicole, you won't guess who I ran into on the bus. Matt. And he was asking about you. Numbers were exchanged. A date was agreed. And we met. I look back on what I decided to wear on my first date with this gentleman. The only thing I could think to forgive myself is, is that it was the 90s and that it was Seattle. I was wearing jeans and this red shirt that was like a button down. I, I, I looked like a lesbian. I apologize. That's not, that's not politically correct. I'm sorry. But I did not look good. Not that, oh, I'll stop. But we had a nice time. And it was, we, we, we chatted. We laughed. He offered to walk me home, even though it was wildly out of his way. He walked me home, I invited him up for tea. We sat on the sofa, we were kissing, messing around. I gave him a blowjob. It seemed like the polite thing to do. <laughs> and then he left. And then he didn't call. And I was a little pissed off about that. 
And later he talked to, to Jeff. Now, now Jeff's gay, and uh, when he talked to Jeff, Matt was like, I, I don't know quite how I feel about, about that, the date and when that happened. And Jeff was like, get over yourself. And not long after that, Matt called again, and he invited me to a Christmas party at his flat. And I didn't know anyone at this party, but I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm fairly good at speaking to people I don't know and flitting around to group to group. I don't need to be babysat. And it's a good thing because Matt was not giving me any attention at all. And I started to feel like, what am I doing here? Because you know, this time I made sure that I didn't, wasn't wearing the jeans and the ugly red button-down shirt. I, I looked really good. And then when I finally had enough, I was bored, I left. And Matt followed me out. And he was like, you know, look, I'm really sorry. I've been avoiding you all night. It's just, I have a complication. There's someone here that I've been hanging out with. In America, hanging out is a euphemism for various activities. Um, <laughs> we've been hanging out, and I need to sort that. But I, I'd like to sort that because I'd like to see more of you. Okay. So we... we started hanging out, and one night in bed at his place, we were, we were talking, and we, he'd like to do this thing where we would trace a picture on each other's back, and you'd have to try to guess what it was or words, and he stopped, and he said, I need, I need to read you. Can I share something with you? Sure, and he read me a letter that his father had written him the day that he had been born. And it was what you would imagine it would be. It was sweet and lovely. And this incredibly intimate thing that he shared with me. And it scared the absolute shit out of me. I came home um, the next day to my apartment. And there was a message on the machine from Joe. And he left it at 2 in the morning. And you could hear it in his voice that he knew that my not being there at two in the morning meant that I was somewhere else. And that made me feel really good. But then later, I spoke to him. And he said, you know, look, I've been thinking, uh, I'd really like for us to work on being together later. I don't know what the fuck that means, but we're, we're working toward being together later. And I felt this drop in the pit of my stomach. I, I heard myself saying yes. He was moving to Los Angeles. I was planning on applying to the American Film Institute. You know, of course, the odds of me getting in are ridiculously low. What are the odds of me getting into this graduate school? And he was like, okay, you know what? If you don't get in, You'll move there anyway. So part of me, I'm thinking, okay, what, what am I doing? Where am I going? What am I doing? I'm saying yes. I was saying yes. I was saying yes. So I called Matt, and I said, you know, we, we need to talk. And he, of course, we all know what that is. That's a euphemism. We need to talk. And we agreed to meet at a bar in Capitol Hill that I didn't know. And I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and he wasn't there. 
And I, I, I called and checked my messages, and it turned out I messed up. I was waiting in the wrong bar. I was waiting in a bar for an hour to break up with a man I didn't want to break up with. So I, I ran to the right bar, and he was there waiting in a bar for me to break up with him. And we did. I, I, I had the talk, and he was fine. He was lovely about it. And going forward, you know, we would meet sometimes for a drink, and he'd you know, make jokes and how we could maybe you know, still sleep together while we you know, weren't together anymore. But ha, 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 no, we're not going to do that. And uh, then I, I did get into the AFI, and I left Seattle. And before I, I, I left, he came into the shop to see me where I, I worked before I left. And he uh, made some jokes saying, oh, you're going to be the one that got away. And I made some joke back because he was always a bit of a player. And he said, Nicole, I don't, do you think I read that letter to everybody? So I moved to LA, and within a month, I discover that Joe, during this time that we were working toward being together, was also actively with somebody else. And I, if I had left things with Matt there, he would always have that like little memory in the back of his head where maybe I'm that cool chick that you know things could have been one thing, but no, I called him crying. I called him crying. Sound like some psychotic, I don't know what about. Oh, I can't remember. And I just must have sounded completely pathetic. It took me a few years to finally get Joe out of my system. It took me a few years to finally break free of, of that. And for a while after we weren't dating any longer, we were still able to be friends. But then uh, that even had to stop. And um, I wish him all the best. We just aren't very good for each other. And I know that if Aristotle was sitting out there in the audience right now, in terms of tragedy, this is probably a negative six. I mean, nobody's died, no eyes have been gouged out. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I know, it's pretty kind of low, but I guess, I guess it would have been nice to be properly in love with someone in my 20s. That's something I would have liked to experience. Thank you. Sad thoughts from Nicole Thomas? Maybe you can empathise. She does have plenty of happier things to talk about though, and she'll share them with you if you follow her on Twitter, where she's at TreeFrogGirl. Emily Capel is a singer-songwriter from London, and she openly admits that she doesn't have much tragedy in her life, but she tried her best to bring her most tragic song to our night. So this is the uh, stand-up for tragedy, and I don't really have any tragedy, but my EP is... My old EP is called the Who Killed Smiley Culture EP, and this EP that I'm working on now, which I've released actually, which is on my website, which you can get, it's www.emilycapel.com, but there's stuff knocking about at the back where you can pick it up. It's called the Who Framed Winston Silcott EP, and, uh, and this is a song from Who Killed Smiley Culture, so this is tragic, I don't know.
keep moving and rolling the grind gets so near if they come a knocking then i'll say you weren't here and i'm fucking cool man because i know the rock man with two snooker balls tied up in a sock man the real slim shady just stood up with one of his fingers on each hand up and the streets are now empty but the popo's still low and there's me thinking i'm so insecure well i am more qualified than professor green and that little ginger's got nothing on me so listen up baby to the things that i taught ya who killed smiley culture Well, it's all right for me, cause I'm not in the business of the lies you told. Little Wayne and his missus of whipping the lovers you knew couldn't hack it. Just to sell stories of what's up his bracket. While I look all right in them apple bottom jeans. But the boots with the fur, they did nothing for me. So listen up, baby, they're the things that you are. Who? Killed Smiley Coach. West Side, I'm from the West Side, where we'll set your party on fire. West Side, I'm from the West Side, where we'll set your night light. I'll set it on fire. I'm gonna set you on fire. Thank you. <laughs> I ain't I know other girl you've met before. She give it up, then baby get on the floor. And I'll be in my creepers and you can wear your sneakers We'll eat more teasers and then we'll pray to Jesus no more This ain't like no other song you've heard today Should give it up then baby throw it away Cause my baby drives a Cadillac It's deep blue when I sit in the back We drive to the river with the rooftop flat And when we get there we won't come back no more so I'll wait here for you rude boys to stop being rude And while I'm waiting, maybe you and I could write some tune As the bombs of the Beatles, they drop and they fall down on my head I'll be in my new thread saying, what did you expect? Show me some respect no more We ain't like no other band that's kicking back So why don't you guys buy our tracks? Because we are the perverts And we'll make your ears hurt Turn up the reverb And put us on your t-shirt Just sip the scissor Baby go berserk I see you in the desert I sing like a cherub I'm just a big flirt no more So I'll wait here For you rude boys To stop being rude 
And while I'm waiting, maybe you and I could get in the mood. As the bombs to the Beatles, they drop them, they fall down on my head. I'll be in my new thread saying, what did you expect? Show me some respect no more. I said no more. I said no more. I said no more. Thanks very much. <laughs> that's, uh, that's all I'm going to do. So thanks very much. Have a good night. We also love it when our performers think completely outside of the box and don't necessarily have to relate their personal experiences. So if they don't consider themselves particularly tragic, there's definitely something they can bring. Our theme in February is tragic love, so we're right before Valentine's Day on February the 13th. Everyone who stood and performed on stage at the Dogstar in Brixton will be out very soon on this podcast. If you're an old romantic and you love love, or if you hate love, I'm sure there will be a performance which will make you think about love in a different way. Stand up tragedy. Gay Foreman finished off Tragic Beginnings with one of his comic songs containing some advice about how we can all look forward into 2014. You can pretend that you're happy. Bloody hell, bloody hell, the world is awful. Well, there's killing and starvation and injustice and religion everywhere. Everything, everything is looking dreary. There's too many people in the world and far too much pollution in the air. Everything I used to love has turned to shit. All the world's gone bankrupt now and it doesn't look like things can soon improve. I'm noticeably older than I was, definitely fatter just because I no longer feel the need to move. Well, what do you do when the world around you makes you so depressed? What do you do when you've lost the motivation to get dressed? Pretend that you are happy and smile when you're feeling blue. If you pretend you're happy, you'll start to believe it's true. It's better to fake a smile than fill the world with woe. So just pretend you're happy and nobody will know. Bloody hell, bloody hell, the world is scary. Cause there's nothing but corruption and destruction and reality TV. Every day, every day I slowly realise Every single thing I used to know and trust is run by people just like me One at a time I'm losing touch with my former friends And lately it seems I never ring the contacts in my phone Every time I breathe it could be my last breath And I'm getting closer to my death for which I will probably be alone what do you do when the word... Oh, ah, ah, forgotten the word. What do you do when you've lost all the ambitions you once had? What do you do when the slightest inconvenience makes you sad? Pretend that you are happy and smile when you're feeling down. 
If your friends think you're happy, they'll still want you around. You'll realize it's important to be glad with what you've got. So just pretend you're happy and shut up if you're not. Pretend that you are happy and smile when you're feeling blue. If you pretend you're happy, you'll start to believe it's true. It's better to fake a smile than fill the world with woe. So just pretend you're happy and nobody will know. Thank you very much. My name is Jay Foreman. I'll see you soon. Good night. So I wasn't around, but Charlie Harrison became reporter for the evening. She caught up with all of our performers during the show. They all told her how they saw the new year and what they think of New Year's resolutions. And she received some very mixed answers. First, here's comedian Rosie Wilby. I've been clearing out my flat actually, so I have been doing the kind of New Year kind of get rid of all the old stuff. I used to be a musician, I've got loads of guitars that I don't really play anymore and so I sold them all off to a guitar maker around the corner in Peckham so okay. he's gonna do something nice with them I hope, sell them to nice people or make new guitars out of them and polish them up. Any resolutions that you've made or broken? No, I don't really ever make you any. don't believe in resolutions? Oh, no. No, I, I mean, I, I could give up chocolate but it wouldn't happen. No. I wouldn't actually do it. <laughs> Cliff Chapman doesn't believe in them either. What will you be beginning in 2014? What will I be beginning? Yeah, um, tragic beginnings have been. Um, a career would be quite nice. What else would I be beginning? Um, probably uh, several Game of Thrones books to catch up before the new series. What else would I be beginning? A diet would probably be a good idea to begin. <laughs> Some were a little more positive, like Jay Foreman and Hannah Chutzba. I couldn't think of any good ones. I mean, it occurred to me that maybe I should tweet less, but then if I give up Twitter, what would be the point if I can't show off to anyone about it? So I've, I've decided not to change anything for January. I'm just going to you know, pretend it's a normal day of the normal year and carry on as I was. Write more, sleep more and exercise more. I'm not sure I've managed any of them yet. <laughs> you positive? Feeling positive about 2014? Uh, it's kind of like a, getting opening a new notebook, I think. Mm. Like the first page, you make yourself all these promises, and then by the time you've like made a few spelling mistakes, like, okay. <laughs> it'll do, same as ever. So I think, what, 17th of January now? I'm, I'm, yeah. Whereas comedian David Von Jones believes in continuous self-improvement. I don't believe in news resolution. I believe in continuous self-improvement. Okay, and you succeeding with that continuous self-improvement? Well, I'm trying, you know, it's, it's always... It doesn't seem very funny. <laughs> Emily Capel and Helen Zaltzman aim for something achievable. New Year's resolutions. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I... Well, Lou Reed died, so I wanted to listen to The Velvet Underground. That's a tragedy. <sighs> yeah, so I wanted to listen to The Velvet Underground a bit more. I know it's a bit of a rubbish resolution, but yeah. Um, broken any or made any New Year's resolutions this year? No. Not, not one for resolution. Yeah, I was trying to do the triathlon and I, and I did like 15 days. Congratulations. Thank you very much. January is an awful time oh. to give things up as well because it's a depressing month. It I made is. The only resolution I've made in adult life was to read more a couple of years ago because I, I just stopped reading nearly as much as I did and that was a really good one. So that's a positive thing to do rather than feeling like self-flagellation. Finally, one audience member told Charlie something completely different that her and a friend created. 
little ones, but but my friend and I, we call them affirmations because we didn't want to get on the whole resolution bandwagon. She has little rules about them, so one has to be for work, one has to be a way of bettering yourself, um, one that's just silly and for fun, and one that is like you know, a real kind of plan. I guess they seem a bit more positive. Resolutions always seem a bit like denying yourself something. So this is like, well, this year I'm going to go to loads of exhibitions or, you know, or I'm going to go, like one specific thing, I'm going to go and get a facial. You know, like a really achievable thing. So I hope you've all been inspired to think a little bit about your own idea of 2014 and what it's brought you so far. Hopefully you've also been inspired to come along to one of our live nights. Go to www.standuptragedy.co.uk to find out where we'll be performing, what we'll be doing and who will be on our stage. Good luck with any tragic beginnings you undertake. Feel free to get in touch with us on our Facebook or our Twitter. Tell us about it and enjoy your new year. One final thought, this is how Jay Foreman sees 2014. I think we sort of agree on balance. Most people thought that 2013 was a mildly disappointing year. 2013 set the bar low, so in that sense, yeah, I am quite optimistic. I think 2014 has the potential to be not as awful as 2013. Any predictions? Um, it's going to be more of the usual, I think. The world is going to continue getting sadder and more bleak and more awful and we're still going to be continually amazed that we're living as far into the future as we are. They're going to invent some kind of iPad meets other type of item of clothing and there's going to be very few surprises. It's time to go. It's time to go.